Barukata Adonai Eloheinu Melekaolam Asher Bakar Bin Vim Tovim Beratza Vedivrehem Hane Emarim Beemet Baruk Ata Adonai Haboker Batora Uv Moshe Avdo Uv Israel Amo Uvin Vie Haemet Va Zedek Biskut Mashiach Yeshua Amen. Amen. Well, Shalom Alekum to everyone. It is Parsha Vayera this week, or Slika Vayikra, not Vayera. Good night. But it feels like Vayera because it's like awesome and stuff. But, uh, you know, we are headed into Purim next week with the help of Hashem. And also, this Shabbat that is coming up is a very special Shabbat. It's a very Shabbat that we shall call a Shabbat to remember because it's Shabbat Zakor which is all about remembering what Amalek did to us and making sure that we don't repeat the same actions that created Amalek and that we repeat the actions of what overcame Amalek. So, Hasis and I are here with the Haftarah this week, and I'm going to hand the mic over to him. All right, Baruch Hashem. So, you know, it's, it's interesting you mentioned it's uh, Parsha Zakor. You know, it's also a month of Adar, so I hope everyone is making their Adar a joyful experience and, and finding just the beauty in life and the wonder in life. <clears throat> you know, but you mentioned Parsha Zakor, so um, I figured for the namesake, we do a little remembering back in the Jewish history. Um, there's, there's a wonderful app. Uh, it's, you know, just type in Jewish history. It's like a little yellow app with a calendar on it. it has a little red olive mm. and so if anyone wants that resource pretty interesting stuff uh but today is actually the birthday the the, the birthday of um moshe and his passing mm. adar two seventh and so and then there's also also on another note another aspect of remembering um some persecution from the spanish inquisition began not today of course but you know anniversary of it right but even more interesting um this this shabbat marks actually um the first torah dispute in the first century ce between hillel and shammai it marks and the what the first torah dispute in the first century between um shammai and hillel wow Okay. And so, as we know, there's there's a lot of disputes between these two houses, um, these ruling authorities in, in Israel. Right. And we follow the customs of Hillel. Um, but it's, I'm mentioning this because it's something interesting that it says here um, that according to our tradition, following the arrival of the Mashiach, the law will follow the rulings of the house of Shammai. Ooh. And so I just want to bring that up. Um, I think it's interesting, of course, you know, you know, we, we believe a Mashiach and we're still following um, Hillel's ruling. So let's not get crazy. But I do find it interesting that this tradition is out there. And Yeshua in his day um, cited a ruling where he sided with Shammai about, um, about divorce. Okay. And you should only get divorced through a matter of unfaithfulness and adultery. Mm. Whereas Hillel was a more lenient approach as he is in most of his approaches where Shammai was more restricted in his approach wow and so I do think that's interesting that here Yeshua is 
that's mentioned in the Basura that he sided with with Shammai in the case of divorce. And here this tradition is that we have that Mashiach, after his arrival, will, will follow the rulings of Shammai. Now, again, don't get crazy. We default like Hallel, for instance, you know, we, we sit during the Shema. We don't stand as uh, Shammai would rule. And there's many other things. That's a great point to bring up because one would think, well, are we going to go with Hallel or are we going to go with Shammai? And the answer is yes. You know, if <laughs> yes. you really think about the beauty of the of the two helping us really blend and make a beautiful harmonious um, halakha, you know, when it comes to that, because like you said, you know, Mashiach himself even sided with Shammai on at least that mm. point, you know, yes. so it's, it's a very cool thing to know that, you know, Judaism is not monolithic. Yes. That's so true. I, mean. <clears throat> I figured we could go and get into our characters like we usually do. Um, just mention a little bit about uh, Samuel and Saul and this other character we have popping up that needs to be gone called Amalek, curse be he. Man. So a little bit about Samuel. Um, so Samuel, he has just this important role in, in history. You know, he's he's one of the judges and he's really like the the pivot point between the age of judges and the age of, of the kings. And so he's like, he's known as like this stern moralist and this age um, and, and the age that he was in required the very qualities which he possessed. So it was due to him that Israel was not completely demoralized in this, this dark period of the judges where the Philistines like captured everyone. They outlawed the making of weapons. They did a lot of uh, destruction and turmoil for Israel. And it's just interesting um, because you just see Samuel had this, um, perhaps Samuel's greatest claim to honor and the most permanent of his life's achievements were the, the schools of the prophets, which he founded. And from which the work of the Hebrew prophets, they're issued as supreme creations, is Israel's religious, uh, religious uh, genius. And so he instituted all these schools of the Hebrew prophets and he did uh, great work in sustaining the people, uh, before the work of or the time of the kings. Wow. And so we get into Saul and, you know, I'm going to read this uh, little excerpt here. Um, so that he was, it was fortunate for the monarchy as an institution of Israel that the first to be raised to kingship was a man so innately modest and unassuming. And Arbanal actually points out in, in his introduction to uh, Saul that he presents four additional factors of interest in his being chosen as a monarch. First, Saul's father is described as a mighty man of value, uh, a characteristic that would also inspire his son. Second, his name was Saul. Uh, literally, it means borrowed as an indication that his reign would be for a borrowed time. Only, only and would not have any permanent continuity. Third, Saul himself is described as young and goodly. Despite his young age, he was goodly in the ways with God and with the people. Fourth, his physical appearance is described as from his soldiers and upward. He was higher than any of the people. He possessed what is commonly understood as royal bearing, which is a positive quality for uh, being a monarch. Hmm. And just a, a few more few more points on these guys get a, a kind of sufficient background is uh, we have uh, Samuel. 
and the they all have very interesting origin stories samuel um shawl and even amelik and you could tell by their origins um how they came out to be and who how it was instrumental in who they were to become and so you have shawl you have a little little samuel first okay Sham, samuel or shmuel uh he came about through the prayers of Hannah. And so Hannah prayed, give to your handmaiden a man-child, literally a seed of man. I'm a man distinguished among men. Uh, uh, Shmuel said, a son who will anoint two men, Shaul and David. Rabbi Yochanan said, a son who is equivalent to two men, Moshe and Aaron. Our sages said, a son who will be the average among men, neither tall nor short, so as not to attract the evil eye. Mm. And it's kind of a little interesting fact about him is that he was the only prophet that prophesied in his death and after his death. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and a uh, little link to, to Moshe because it compares it to Moshe. So he was, he was equal to Moshe. Whenever the, the people saw, of Israel saw the clouds suspended between heaven and earth, they knew that God was speaking with Moshe. So it was with Samuel. And he actually ruled for 10 years and one year together with Shaul. And there's this interesting thing from 1 Samuel 28, uh, 13, citing 4b. It says, I saw God-like beings coming up. Samuel brought Moshe along. He said to Moshe, if heaven forbid, they are summoning me to judgment, come up with me. For there is nothing you wrote in the Torah that I did not fulfill. So he was a dedicated man to... Um, to Torah, who was equivalent to Moshe. Some say he was greater than Aaron and Moshe combined. Very, very righteous man. Wow. Moving on to Shaul. You know, uh, mentions that, um, like he's very, it mentions about him a lot of these physical features of which he was handsome. And it mentions that uh, ladies were very fond of him and it's like this parallel to Yosef and we'll see how the interplay is with our, our half tour as we go on but there's a link to Yosef as far as his looks are concerned hmm. and it mentions you know this is something I love because it speaks of his humanity it's a very comical scene because Shaul was he was a warrior he was what's noted about him is that he was head above all the other men he was very tall um, like he he looked like he was like an army general, you know? Yeah. But there's this interesting story um, that Rashi cites and it says, when the sons of Benjamin, by prior arrangement, snatched the daughters of Shiloh, who had gone out to the vineyards, Shaw was embarrassed to snatch himself a wife until she came brazenly and chased after him. Oh. So, you know, it's kind of, it's, it's a funny scene because you imagine this guy would just by his looks and as far as his stature goes maybe not his looks but you imagine he would be uh so full of himself so arrogant that he would go and and just claim whatever he wanted right but here he is he's he's such a modest man he's such a humble man and bizarre Hashem will will attempt to redeem his image in this half torah but just it's kind of comical you have him like oh, i'm gonna shy away i'm going embarrassed and here his wife comes and chases after him Mm-mm. It's interesting you use the phrase redeem his image because 
you know, yes. more and more every day with Lapid. I mean, that's really what we're doing until the coming of Mashiach is redeeming the image of Mashiach. <laughs> yes. So definitely. And it was this like these qualities that allow him to um, produce, you know, Esther speaking of the, the half Torah and, and the upcoming holiday of Purim. Mm-hmm. So his virtues was that he was humble, that he ate Hulin only when it was, uh, to or richly pure he spent his own money freely but protected the money of israel he sent his ser- he set his servant's honor equal to his own you know when like you think about kings and a lot of times they'll take money from the people they'll tax them tremendously and put burdens on them they can't bear but uh shawl was very much like shmuel and that shmuel never took anything from anybody he sustained himself he 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 really worked for what he's had and supported the people at the same time and Shaul, he raised from his own money, he would wage wars. He didn't, he didn't necessarily burden the people with all these heavy taxes to, to accomplish this, this war, which is what kind of very, very ironic, very different um, from a, a typical king. Wow. Um, but anyway, for his, his modesty, Shaul actually married to become an ancestor of the modest Esther. What was his modesty? The matter of the kingdom of which Samuel spoke, he told him not. He did not reveal to his uncle that he had been anointed king. So even though he was king, he had this great honor. He didn't tell anybody, not even his uncle. Wow. <laughs> you know, um, another story, if you read back in, the, um, in earlier in Samuel, you have the story of, of Samuel's mentor, a man by the name of Eli. And it, it mentions that there's this man who comes running to tell him the news of the defeat of Shiloh. And that man was actually Shaul. You know, uh, David uh, makes reference to him in, in Tehillim. Um, uh, forgive me if I'm saying this wrong, but it's something about being swift as eagles. And he's referring to Shaul. And it's like the mourning for Saul that he's taken place. But he actually, he was the man, the man from Benjamin ran out of the camp and came to Shiloh the same day. This is First Samuel 4.12. It was Shaul who covered 60 meals that day. While in the camp, he heard that the tablets of law had been captured by who? Goliath. Wow. And he went and he snatched them for Goliath. And then he came to Shiloh, which was 60 mil away. It's like a huge distance away. So here he comes, this, you know, the giant Goliath, who's everyone's afraid of, you know, in the, in the future. Shaul just runs up, grabs a tablet. You, you imagine like this excellent, like, I don't know, something that's way, way better than anything in the NFL. You know, like right. you, you take up these huge tablets from this giant and then you run like a, a mad dash to Shiloh that spans this huge, huge uh, distance. So he was he was an epic war hero, but no one really knew about him. He always remained hidden. And, you know, he was always very modest about his stature. And he did some of the most amazing deeds in all of Israel and arguably than than most of the kings of Israel, definitely most of the kings of Israel. But he was never recognized for them, huh. um, as opposed to like, people like David. At all, <laughs> yeah, that's you know. There's these huge parallels, which, why, which is why we go through the characters um, and, and their backstories. Uh, but it, it, it mentions from Bashit Rabbah twenty five three that the famine was to have come not in David's time but in Shaul's, but because Shaul was weak as a sickmore shoot as a result of his sinning. HaKadosh Baruch Hu brought in the days of David who was able to bear it. 
Mm. And so it mentions that he, he became weak. He wasn't always weak. He was this war hero. He was this great man. He did a lot of amazing feats and deeds. You know, he subdued literally the, all the enemies of Israel to the point where he had one left, Amalek. You know, here, here was a guy who you think of like, everyone talks about, you know, David and Shlomo are great kings and they are. But you think about Shaul, this was a time when literally the, the enemies had dominion over Israel. And the, Phil- the Philistines actually outlawed the making of weapons. And Shaul would raise armies against all these nations. And they were armed with like sticks, stones, and pitchforks. And he still subdued all the enemies. Good night. You know, there's even one, there's an Ammonite king by the name of Nakash, who was antagonized the people so much the people would say, hey, let's make a covenant. And he says, okay, I'll make a covenant with you that I don't constantly antagonize you. But guess what? I'm going to have to gouge your right eye out. And uh, you're, we're going to have to have marriage ceremonies between our, our daughters and sons. And I'm going to burn your Torah scrolls. And like, this is one of the Kings that Shaul defeated and it really put him on the map, so to say, because people were not respecting them all there. They had this phrase is, is Shaul too among the prophets? (laughs) You know, like who is this guy? They mocked him. They derided him, uh, derided him, you know, but you know, he, by the defeat of this King, who is such this Ammonite King who is, such an evil man people started respecting him they started seeing him as a great leader and you kind of see why in the times of david there was a lot of people who still supported saul because he brought them from the state of nothingness the state of subjugation he really like like protected them and and saved them and not just protect them but he brought them out of submission from all their enemies he was like the ultimate war hero king Um, and then we go to our, our final character. This is Amalek, curse be he. And I'm saying this because um, uh, I always say curse be he after Amalek, or at least it started to, because it mentions that the Holy One, blessed be he, took an oath by his throne of glory not to leave a single descendant of Amalek under heaven and to remove any trace of them. So that it should not be said, the tree was Amalek's, this camel was Amalek's, the lamb was Amalek's. So the name of Amalek will not be mentioned. Neither the name nor the throne is complete until the memory of Amalek is eradicated. And Bruce Hashem will touch on that later. But, you know, just see how Hashem views uh, this, this type of people, if you will. And we'll mention more about him in the future, um, why he's so hated by Hashem. But Devrim Rabbah mentions that he was raised on Esau's lap. And you know, it mentions that uh, what reason did Amalek to settle? What reason had he to settle on the border on the way to the Israelites entry into land? His grandfather Esau had commanded him to encounter them on the way. So he uprooted himself and resettled there. And Esau told Amalek how I toiled to kill Yaakov, but he did not fall into my hands. Therefore, set your mind to taking my revenge. And whenever the Holy One blessed be he mentions Amalek, he curses him. That's, you know, I meant to throw that in with the other one. Um, 
there's also this interesting story because we remember um, the story of Eliphaz. This was Esau's son who hunted down Yaakov and robbed him of all his possessions. And, you know, it mentions that uh, I guess later um, Eliphaz had a, had a heart change, you know, based on this, what's brought down from the coach me uh, by a schlock. It says, I'm like, ask his father, Eliphaz, the Yemenite, father, who will inherit this world and the world to come? The children of Israel, replied Eliphaz, go out and dig wells for them and fix roads for them. If you do so, your share will be the lowly among them and you will enter the world to come. But Amalek did not do so. Instead, he set out to destroy the world. Wow. And, you know, there there are some opinions that Eliphaz is is the same one who is one of the friends of Job as well. So Uh I think it's kind of interesting. I think he might have have had a heart change somewhere on the road based on on this uh, midrash. So basically, after he encounters the Lamb of God, he uh, made Shuva and became a person who supported Israel. Yeah, I mean it. It could it could be based on based on that, you know, that moment. But I think that's an awesome. That's an amazing parallel. You know, man, you 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 took of the the garments. And I, not really the garments, except the, but the the wealth and the glory yes. of the land. That's right, the spoils. This this could this could have been the thing that was instrumental to this change, you know. But wow, I I really want to I really mentioned their, these origin stories of these three people because I think it 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 specifies a lot uh, about a person, you know. Um, it's it's mentioned according to our tradition that uh the the conception of a child the char- the character of a child is mostly dependent if not like extremely dependent it's mostly dependent on the thoughts and the character of the parents during the moment of conception hmm. and so if, if you if you look at all these people you could see how their origins actually play out into who they became. Um, uh, Shaul, his, his father was a warrior, and he had a, a grandfather, I believe, who was called Nair, and he would light candles to the house of study, the Beit, Beit Midrash, so that people could go and learn, they could find their way there. You know, you have uh, Shmuel, Samuel, who was born of the product of, of, of a woman who was so brokenhearted and she poured out her heart to God and says, give me a righteous son so I could dedicate him to you. Wow. You know, who was, who was just humiliated and badgered her entire life. And, and she was brokenhearted and she just cried to God. And, and here comes, for not, not even for herself, but so that Hashem's name could be sanctified. And out comes this righteous prophet who said to be greater than Moshe and Aaron. But Amalek, Amalek is very interesting because he had two. Uh, he had two parents, and let me pull it out here. And of course, we know Eliphaz, and then there is another one. Of her name was Timna. Oh no! 
<laughs> you want to give a back backdrop on on Timna? Well, Timna is actually mentioned. I believe it's uh, Maseket Sanhedrin because she came to convert and be a part of the household of Avraham, and everybody said no. And so she was like, well, fine. It's better to be, you know, a queen in the house of the uh, the enemy of Israel than it is to be, you know, a servant over here in this house. And they don't receive me anyway. So in other words, to summarize that, you have a very bitter, rejected uh, person who wanted to be a candidate for conversion and she was just like, well, fine, I'm going to do the next best thing, which is go to Asaph, because if you won't accept me as a Jew, then I can be an Asaph, which, you know, I bite my tongue, but it's really a Christian. So um, just keeping it real. But uh, with all that being said, in the household of Asaph, she's very embittered and she knows of the rejection and where her heart truly wanted to go, but because it wasn't allowed to go there, it sprouted roots in this household of very much full of idolatry, very much full of lawlessness, very much full of anti-Semitism. So there you go. Well, Brooke Shem, thank you for the incredible introduction. You know, um, and so we see... <clears throat> We see this person and, you know, in, in the Torah, it mentions um, that there's certain mixtures we're not allowed to have. Mm-hmm. Um, one of those being uh, shotnuts, you know, and, and it's a mixture of wool and linen. And if we mix certain things, uh, then it can have dire- disastrous um, effects on creation. And, and such was the union between Timna and Eliphaz. And, uh, you know, just while, while we are on shotness, there is a, um, a scientific article, a little excerpt that I'd like to read a little bit about this, talking about these, these just to cite the proof that can have harmful effects, certain mixtures. It says, this is a study done by a Jewish doctor, Yehadi Yellen, on the frequencies of fabric. According to this study, the human body has a signature frequency of 100, and organic cotton is the same um, 100. The studies show that if a number is lower than 100, it puts a strain on the body. A diseased, nearly dead person has a frequency of about 15. And that is where the polyester, rayon, and silk register. Non-organic cotton registers at a signature frequency of about 70. However, if the fabric has a higher frequency, it gives energy to the body. This is where linen comes in as a super fabric. Its frequency is 5,000. Wool is also 5,000. But when they're mixed together with linen, the wool and the linen, the frequencies cancel each other out and fall to zero. Even wearing a wool sweater on top of a linen outfit in a study collapsed the electrical field. The reason for this could be that the energy field of wool flows from left to right, while the linen flows in the opposite direction from right to left. And so we see just on like the scientific realm, you know, we have, there's these certain resonant frequencies and if you have certain mixtures, then it can cause dis- that disaster effects upon the body. And this is the same in the spiritual realm. And so just a quick shout out if anyone likes to know more about that and be careful about what they're wearing. Um, there's an excellent book called Guidelines 
question and answers about the laws of shotness and other topics relating to clothing by Rabbi Elotzer Barclay and Rabbi Yitzhak Jagir. And it's really simple to read. It's got, it's kind of answer based format, but if anyone's interested in that and be more aware, this is good, a good book to read. That um, is insane when you really think about what you just said, because of the simple fact that the Cohen Gadol wears wool and linen literally mixed in their garments, which means mm-hmm. that they should have just such a horrible like disposition. Yeah. Which goes to the fact that the place that the Cohen Gadol wears these garments in really points out the power and the miraculousness of Hashem that what should cause harm and all sorts of chaos to the body actually causes life and life everlasting. Yeah, it was it was all dependent on on the position. You know, while we're in this world, this is a world made for us. And there's certain things that we do that are going to hurt us. Like like Hashem says, I give you life and I give you death. But the Mishkan was a place for God. You know, you you look at it like uh I don't I don't know if I want to get into to all that, but essentially it's a place for God to dwell which is opposite of our world. You know, you block out the sun and the moon from the, all the sheets. And so you just have, um, like, like the sun and the moon is what we use for time. So that's blocked out, Good you know, and then you, you go into the, like the, the Holy of Holies, you know, and it's, it's something that, you know, it mentions the arc being the same dimensions as that area. So it's like, devoid of space and time you know and you actually go inside the ark and you have this this white fire black fire wow you know on the on the tablets this idea of of chaos and this idea of order and it's like reversing creation and it's creating a space for god because god doesn't need physics he doesn't need like any of this the natural order to survive you know but we do well and so how it's a, it's a completely different environment, like you're saying, and just the Kedusha of that environment and, and the factors um, wouldn't be as in place because it's a whole different environment. Wow. Well, didn't uh, really want to go off into all of that, but I'm glad we did. And uh, yeah, while, while we're at it, I just want to say that my uh, source for Timna is Sanhedrin 99B. So, yes, worth it, man. But all that to say, you know, there are certain things when mixed together that cause disaster effects. This is also in the spiritual realm, you know. And so you have Timna, and then you have Eliphaz. And if you look at your name, you could you could see a little bit of what this caused. And there's three things that I want to kind of focus on throughout this half Torah. And one we talked about, we want to redeem Shaul. Right. Why? Because Pesach's coming up, mm. you know, and we're, we're trying to establish humility. How are we establishing humility? Uh, my wife and I are having a wonderful discussion just on the, the aspect of depending on where our focus is, depends on the character traits we foster and develop. And what I mean by that is that say you're, you're focused on other people and what they're doing wrong what that fosters in you you're looking at other people and you're saying oh i'm better than that person that aspect 
that fosters a little bit of pride. Yikes. Um, as opposed, if you're focused on God, then like you're saying, hey, I'm, I'm ash and dust. I'm a worm. I'm nothing. Yep. Right? And that fosters uh, a state of humility. And so why are, we, why, why are we trying to redeem Saul's image? Well, it's also in part to give us Pesach ready because we got to clean out the leaven, which is like into pride. Mm. Right? And so that's one thing. The other aspect is we're going to look at the factors of how Amalek is produced and sustained in the world. And that's what we're about to touch on. And finally, three, we're going to get Purim ready by figuring out practical ways to annihilate Amalek um, in our life and what we can do. Lock and load. All right. So back to Timna and Eliphaz and answering the question, what are the factors of how Amalek became produced? Well, we, we've heard about the stories of Esau poisoning his mind. There's also stories that I know you're familiar with of, of Timna poisoning the mind of her children especially Amalek, to incite them against Yaakov. But even their very names show the pattern that they were holding onto. You have Eliphaz, which literally can mean like Elipaz, like, like my God and gold, like my God is gold, mm. or the idea of my God is skill. Mm. And so you have this idea of someone attributing godliness to their own abilities or what they have. You know, and then on the, the side that's that's being merged with is the idea of Timna from the root word mana. Not mana, but mana, mim noon ayan, which means to withhold, to keep back, or to refrain. This verb is often used to describe God's power to withhold something like rain, uh, in like almost four seven and uh offspring. You just said withhold. Yes, withhold. And so it's like like in Telim uh, 327, the wise man does not withhold good from those whom it's due or discipline from a child. And it's interesting, too, because Timna, uh, according to, to some commentaries, is not one of his Eliphaz's like Canaanite wives. It's one of it, a descendants of Ishmael. Oh. And so if we look at this whole idea of this whole idea of withholding, you know, it, and and you mix that with Eliphaz, you have this idea, and you take it that they're both the rejected children of the patriarchs, you know. Yeah. And start contest. What's that? I said yeah, because you know that kind of doesn't that doesn't sound right. <laughs> yeah, it's it's huge. It, you know, it's like they're they're the rejected children of the patriarchs, just like Yosef was. Only difference is how they handled it. And how they handled it depended on how, what their focus was, what their outlook was, what their perception was of God withholding blessings. And we think about that. Tim then was so, she was holding on, on how God had withholded or how Yaakov had withholded blessings from her that allowed bitterness to take root. And she said, it's kind of like the idea of, you know, okay, well, if God's not going to give it to me right now the way I want it, then I'm going to get it on my own. And hence, like she gets with Eliphaz, which means uh, my God is gold or my God is agility, you know? And so we, we, we think that God has no, no effect on our lives. He's not working our lives. And so we attribute everything that we do to our own selves, our own strength, our own agility, our own wealth, what we have. 
And this is how Amalek is, is born into the world. When we don't recognize God and when we attribute our own greatness to our success and we make our own greatness our God and ignore him who is God. Wow. You know, is this why when the battle of Amalek was happening in Parsha Beshalach, that there was a physical and spiritual war that happened simultaneously? To- I, I believe so. I, I think that's an excellent point you're making. And what's interesting is, you know, it mentions that there is no greater war and there will be no greater war than that war against Amalek. And not that it was a great physical war, but it was a great spiritual war. And the thing about battling Amalek is it is mostly a spiritual war. That's where most of the battle takes place. And so we're going to work on um, redeeming Saul and establishing humility and, and, and tying that into annihilating Amalek. How do we, how do we make sure this, this spiritual entity does not grab a hold of us and destroy our ability to produce fruit in the world? All right, so we have, um, of course, we know we're Parsha Zakor, so we're going into our half Torah, and it's all based on the, the mitzvah of destroying Amalek, hence our focus. And it's interesting, um, the half Torah uh, cites us something that's, that's incredible. It says, Hashem sent the prophet Shmuel with the following message to Shaul. You have been anointed by me as a Jewish king. It is one of the king's obligations to destroy the Amalek nation. Now listen to Hashem's voice. What did Shmuel wish to indicate by the word now? Now is the most appropriate moment for the destruction of Amalek. Since the battle against Amalek is primarily spiritual, like we're talking about, the nation's guardian angel in heaven must be failed by B'nai Israel's Kedoshah, their holiness. Their special merits are needed. Um, you have those merits. This is Shmuel talking to Shaul. You are a descendant of Rachel. Her offspring has the special power required to subdue Amalek. <laughs> Moreover, you are from sin, and the people in your generation are Sadakim. Yehoshua, descendant of Yosef, also engaged in battle against Amalek, but he was unable to wipe out the, them entirely since the generation was not yet totally purified from the tomb of Egypt. You are now in a position to overcome the evil Amalekite forces. Don't delay. Um, there's also this idea of the word now um, hinted at a subtle proof and uh, of a time when uh, Shoal, he waited for, he, Samuel asked for him to wait for him before he battled like this mighty Philistine army. And it was the end of the time, end of the, it was almost approached the end of the seven days. His army was leaving him. And so he said, you know what? Um, I'm just going to offer the sacrifices myself. And about that time, Samuel showed up and he's like, what are you doing? You, you ruined everything. You were supposed to wait for me, you know? And so this was the opportunity. Him destroying Amalek was an opportunity for him to also make tikkun for that, the, that mis- little misdeed. That was a huge, huge blunder wow. because of his rifle. That's epic when you really think about what you just said. Like, 
defeating Amelek could have Takoon for that? Yes. Okay. Man. So, yeah, I heard heard you wowing over there. You got something? Well, I'm just, first of all, as I was thinking about you waiting, you talking about uh, Shaul needing to wait for Shamuel, I'm thinking about all the times that in the Basora accounts where people were supposed to wait for Mashiach and how we're currently waiting for Mashiach. And it's like, <laughs> don't get ahead of him. You know, don't make a golden calf. Don't send other people to say, oh, don't worry about coming to my house. She's dead now. Or if you would only showed up three days earlier, we would have been totally fine. My brother wouldn't have died kind of thing. And, oh, yeah. You know, all of these things are like completely appointed. Like, the time that Mashiach shows is like, it is the most prime time for him to show because when he gets there, things are going to happen. And things right. are going to happen that you should have been prepared for. So, like, all of that. But then you talk about the fact that Shaul was supposed to wait for Shamuel and he went and offered sacrifices so that he can go ahead and get the battle done because his army was leaving. Now, yeah. in a, in the, the rational mind, you're thinking, I will be outnumbered soon if more people keep leaving. I know Shamuel's like a ninja and everything because he's from the Levitical uh, territory. Like, that's his hood he grew up in. But, you know, like, we need some people. And it's just like, no, if you just wait on Hashem, he'll take care of it all. And it's just... Yeah. It's just kind of like the fact that he didn't do that at that moment. The next opportunity for him to tacoon for that is to go in and completely wipe out Amelik. Like that was mm-hmm. equivalent to undoing the damage of his past sin. So Yes. And just to keep things in perspective, like the Philistine army, it was comprised of like 30,000 chariots. 6,000 cavalry, and what's mentioned as innumerable infantry. And so, and you think Shaul, like, you barely had weapons. Right. Like, you know, and so it's like you, you take on that perspective, like, the little army that he had, like, the amount of faith that he had to, to go and attack the Philistine army with, with the numbers he had compared to the numbers they had was incredible. But, you know, it just goes to show you how uh, Sadakim, when they, when they fall, they, they, they fall hard because they're judged to a higher standard. It's, it's kind of like the idea of, you know, of a, a man on a, uh, a chair who falls. That's like, that's like us. That's like the, the average person. Yep. Yeah, he might scratch the knee, but he'll get up pretty easy, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and but you know, you think of like Sadakim, like like Shaul. It's like a men on a cliff of a mountain. When 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 they fall, if they survive, they're never going to be the same again. Wow. And you you look at this, uh, and a lot of times we criticize Shaul because we're like, okay, well, you couldn't even do what Samuel Samuel just told you what to do and you couldn't even do that 
Um, and so we have this, this spirit of criticism automatically because we don't understand everything that, that happened, which we, we will, Brazil Hashem. But when Shaw was a man who, who, undergoed, who underwent a difficult test, extremely difficult test, and because he failed it, like we read earlier, he became weak. Like he had this huge fall. And we, we see why later he, he went through so much suffering and he was, you know, completely different than what we see in the, the beginning of the book of Samuel. You know, it's all because of this and this, this half tour, this half tour is the pivotal point in Shaw's life where he starts like suffering from this fall. So with, with that said, you know, we have, um, we'll go into why, why he made the mistake that he did. What was the actual cause of it? So, of course, we have Shmuel saying, go smite Amalek and destroy all of its property. The war is a mitzvah. Do not have pity on him. Get rid of the entire nation, including the children and the animals. And, you know, Shaul, he didn't count the men uh, by, by them, as is forbidden by Torah, but he counted them by sheep. You know, it meant he had 210,000 soldiers. And he counted them all from the sheep from his own flock. So it goes to show you how prosperous he was and how touching on how he, he supported his own uh, armies and his own wars. He didn't like tax the, like, like afflict the people with all these burdens. Like a lot of these Kings have done, you know, that's beautiful. And so um, it's interesting because this, this was the army that with, with Charlotte's head started marching against Amalek and they're, they're ready. They're going to destroy him. It's, it's it's huge. This is a pivotal event in history. And had Shaw actually completed the task of destroying Amalek, he would have paved the way for the final redemption. <laughs> but it mentions this, Midrash mentions this, and it, it's interesting because it says that every crucial junction in history, I call this section Satan persuasion. You know? Okay. Because every <laughs> crucial junction in history, the Satan, the Samak Mim, of course, be he was invested with special powers of persuasion to lure the emissary away from his goal. And so, you know, he, he appears as a serpent to Adam and Eve. You know, when Moshe's up on the mountain, you know, they're about to receive the, the Torah. You know, he there's the, the casket. He makes it like Moshe's casket is floating and they lose faith. But Shaul, Satan actually came and, and persuaded Shaul as well and you got to think that he was given this extreme power of persuasion this is not a normal test against your own yetzahara this is like this is like the the master the the epitome of the yetzahara itself like at its full strength he he came in and persuaded saul so it says now too the satan had permission to prevent the final redemption from occurring during the reign of shawl on this occasion he tempted him in the guise of a valley which is kind of unique Right. Um, but it it mentions that, that Shaul, he was this great Torah scholar, and he associates every, like every Torah scholar, he associates every encounter in life with a mitzvah to which it's to be linked. And once he saw the the valley, it reminded him of the mitzvah of Egla Arufa, mm -hmm. which is the, the, the cow whose, whose neck is broken. If you find a, a, a murder someplace and we don't know who did it, the leaders 
of, of the town going, they break the cow's neck. Devarim 21-4. Source it. Cool. You know? But it's interesting because this influenced him, and before he was ready, he was going to attack Amalek, and he was going to destroy them. But this caused him to think, huh, you know, how valuable is human life? His thoughts were recorded in Midrash. It's obvious the Torah attaches the vast importance to every single human life. A human soul is so precious that an entire ceremony involved the judges of the Sanhedrin, the elders of the nearest town, as well as the Konim, is performed if the body of a murderous Jew was discovered. And now I'm gonna now I'm commanded to exterminate an entire people without exception. He's like, what is this? This there's something that that Shem's trying to show me. You know, this is what he's thinking. Mini tag. Which means I'm not really trying to interrupt you or go into a different direction. Okay. But just to say something along the lines of what you're saying, uh, according to Rashi, the helper of this reasoning uh, from the influence of the Nakash was also Doeg, who is also called Ha-Edomi, which is an Edomite. Yes. So. Yes. <clears throat> and so... This is this is the first thing that happens. It, there's not it's not just like one thing that happened. Like you said, there was also Duet, who was a brilliant, brilliant Torah scholar, but he was wicked. And you know, it mentions like once he saw this valley and he started thinking about the valley of human life, he he wasn't there to just destroy Amalek. He was he was he lost his confidence. He was troubled. He was discomforted. King who was approaching the enemy camp as uh, instead of the king who was at the head, ready to fill the mitzvah. He suddenly lost his focus. He lost his confidence. Like he recited Tehillim 22. Oh, why have you forsaken me? Yes. That's beautiful. Yes. You know, that's incredible. Keep it um, up. Keep going. You know, it mentions, you know, uh, kind of good Midrash kind of swerves back about, the what we mentioned early, earlier, how um, the Am Amalekim, their whole goal was to prevent the destruction of the world. Essentially, their their wish to prevent, uh, like, like Hashem's will on earth. They target Bnei Israel back at the the Yam Suf and all that after splitting the sea, because they were the representatives of God's dominion on earth. And so they wanted to live in, the, in a world of power and glory to lead a life consisting solely on physical pleasure, God's holiness, restraint. And so God's holiness, his restraint had no place in the world. You think about Esau, Esau's blessing was a sword. And as long as, long as Yaakov is prevailing, then Esau's not. Yep. And so they were very adamant of doing this. They did horrendous things to the Israelites, you know, when all the nations re refused, they respected Israel, they saw God, they said, okay, we see that they're, they're your chosen people, you know, we're not going to touch them. And, and no one would have touched them. No one would have attacked them ever if the, the Amalekim didn't attack them after that moment, <laughs> you know. And so you see how wicked these people were, and they, they did horrendous things, like the, the worst possible things you could do to men, women, and children, they did to the Israelites. Um, and so we look at the command to, to destroy Amalek. We may not, ex we, it may sound bad to us to destroy this entire type of people, but 
you know, the mitzvah is not subject to human approval. You know, it's not, it's not whether we understand it, whether we approve of it, it is what it is, and we better do it. Get you some, because so, otherwise we'll be thinking, oh, yeah, I can eat pork because it's organic now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Perfect. Perfect example. You know, and it's it, it's mentioned in, in the Midrash that, you know, that uh, Shaul thought he was being merciful. You know, Dot Sofrim says he spared he spared the children and the cattle. And, of course, we know the king from the half Torah. But the heavenly voice rang out and it says, don't be more righteous than your creator. Ooh. How powerful is that? Mm. And, you know, we think about we think about that and we think. You know, like you have the example of uh, a practical application would be uh, PETA, people for the ethical treatment of animals, which, hey, the Torah supports. Hey, you're going to treat animals fairly. There's there's a dozen verses, if not more so, you could cite in the Torah that says animals should be taken care of and even more so in, in the halakha. Um, you know, but but PETA tries to be more righteous than God. You know, a, a, a bear's eating a human being you know, or about to attack a human being and someone shoots the bear, then they want to file a lawsuit on that person. Wow. You know, but, but our, our Chazal comment on this idea of trying to be more righteous than our creator. And they, they comment that one who is compassionate with Reshaim, with wicked people will ultimately deal cruelly with Sadakim. What? And so you, there, there's a, there's a, um, a scene that really paints this picture um, from the movie, like Saving Private Ryan. I haven't watched it in a very long time, but <laughs> if, if anyone has and they remember the scene, there's a scene where this this German sniper is taken prisoner, and uh, Private Ryan decides to let him go, let him free. He, instead of killing him, he says, "Okay, go." You know. And at the end of the movie, what ends up happening is the same sniper shows up and he kills like most of the platoon who actually saved Private Ryan. You know, and it's just a perfect example how, you know, don't be overly, don't be more righteous than the creator. If you act compassionate toward this wicked Nazi because he's fearful of his life right now, like, you're going to cause the death of thousands of, of, of great and righteous men. I wouldn't be surprised if Barabbas killed many of the people who actually chose to free him. Oh, wow. Yeah, I, I, I think that's a, I mean, that's a good point. <laughs> so. All right, then. That's a good thought. Well, not, not good that he did that, or he possibly did that, but it's a good yeah, um, but I mean, if you really follow the precedent and the critical thinking and what you're saying, it's just kind of like, so if we're going to be nice to our enemies and uh, tip the scales there, then uh, look out, world. Yes. You know, this this actually happened to Saul, too, in his life. You know, he later um, ordered the cold-blooded murder of all the inhabitants of Nob, a city of Kovanim. Come on. Guess who carried that out? Doeg. Oh my goodness. Doeg was the one who was in his ear this this whole time. You know, um, and you know, it mentions that 
Saul was enticed by Satan to have pity on the Amalek king Agag. Saul's bait deem was headed by a brilliant, though wicked man by the name of Doag. When Saul consulted Doag for further instructions, Doag replied, the Torah forbids the slaughtering of a mother animal and her young on the same day. How could Hashem then command the extinction of an entire nation without exception? Surely Hashem does not want Agag to be killed. And, you know, it, it goes into actually explaining that the word that is used, he actually reasons with Shaul. He's like, hey, but, but Samuel told me this. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the people protested when they ordered to destroy the Amalek animals. So there's resistance from some of the people. But Shaul was inclined to vindicate Doeg's course of action. But he says, hey, didn't the, the prophet use this, this certain expression, which connotates destroying? But Doeg said, hey, it also means setting aside as sacred. Oh, my goodness. So Shaul decided with Doeg's prompting that he was permitted to use a later interpretation of the word. Consequently, he set aside part of Amalek's property for Hashem. And so this is why he sets them out of sacrifices and why, why Shaul, or sorry, Samuel comes up to him and he says, and Shaul says, hey, I, I fulfilled the word of God. I did it. Hmm. Because here you have this man who is the head of the Beit Dean, like arguably the greatest Torah scholar in all of Israel, so much so that he was equivalent to the entire population. Because when it says the people cried out, the, the Midrash cites that it was really just Doeg who was greater, who was as great as, as the people, all the people, you know, but he was wicked and he was in Shaul's ear. And you later see how he affected Shaul and David's reign. Whereas before Shaul would have immediately given his, he didn't even want to be king. If you look at it, he understood that he was a temporary king. But once you see his influence of, of Doeg, you see how this resistance plays out. You read later in, in, in Samuel and, and how that played out between Shaul and David's relationship and how that causes so much strain between it. And, you know, arguably this is this may be one of the influences that David had when he when he wrote Tehillim 1, where it says, do not put me in the, the session of scorners and mockers. You know, I don't want to be with them. I mean. Because what happened, Shaul, this great man, one of the greatest men, to ever exist was was in that company of a wicked man Doeg and it corrupted him completely. Wow. So but uh before you go do dig in the battle, there's these people called the Kanim. This is Yitro's descendants. And it's interesting because Shaul sen- sends them away. He's he doesn't want them to be harmed. They were uh, according to the Midrash, they were a Jewish nomadic tribe descended from Yitro. So the, these, these people of, of one convert is considered a Jewish nomadic tribe. Wow. And, you know, there's a sizable number of them, and they were, who were Tamir uh, Chachamim, uh, there's Torah scholars, who sought quiet and solitude, and so they settled in the desert in order to study Torah, and their neighbors happened to be the Amalekites. And so Saul sent them a message. He said, please move away from here, lest you be destroyed or hurt in our battle with the Melech. You know, and so he, he mentions that um, even though your answer, Yitro was originally a minister to the evil Pharaoh, you have no desire, we have no desire to spill your blood because Yitro also performed an act of chesed towards all B'nai Israel. And there's different things he might be referring to. One is, 
Um, he advised Moshe to appoint judges, and this greatly helped the nation. Another thing is that he provided Moshe with a place to stay. And you know, it mentions that a, a Tamid Chacham, uh, like a Torah scholar or great leader in Israel, benefits the entire Jewish people with the merit of his learning and even more directly with his teachings. And so if one actually sustains a person of this stature, he benefits all of Jewry. And so this is the kindness that he's referring to. So it's interesting, uh, the group of people, you know, Yitro had a lasting effect when he went back to his people, like, like essentially all of his descendants became a Jewish nomadic tribe who were, were Torah scholars. <laughs> so very, very interesting. But then you get into the, like what we mentioned about Doeg poisoning his mind. And, you know, you have this moment where, where Shaw comes back and he's like, okay, what, what's going on? You know, Shaw was crowned for the very specific purpose for annihilating Amalek because he was Rachel's descendant. You know, this is, this is also how it came to be because Rachel uh, traded spots with Leah and she sacrificed her own position as the only wife of Yahov to be uh, for her sister's glory. Mm-mm. And we, we kind of see how, how Shaul became this temporary king because that's, that's how, what Rachel did. You know, and, but it was through, it was through her um, that he, he possessed this purity to, to overcome Amalek's impurity. We mentioned it's mostly a spiritual battle. Right. And so he unfortunately lost this opportunity and he therefore handed over the power of Amalek's guardian angel in heaven. And this changed the entire course of history. And of course, this is how we get Haman because um, as rabbis mentioned in his um, Megillah study that he's, he's done, you know, uh, the Agat King actually lived long enough to produce offspring. And Haman became of that. So uh, Shaul was punished, Medida Kenegamida, you know, by failing to exterminate Hashem's enemy. He prevented Hashem's throne rulership from becoming established in the world. So Hashem, therefore, overthrew Saul's throne and gave it to another. Wow. You know, it's, it's interesting because uh, when Shmuel comes up to him, he mentions this idea of what is the sound of, of bleeding sheep that I hear? Yeah. And we, we think that, okay, that's just what's going on in the moment. But we have to remember that Shmuel was a prophet and, and so was uh, Saul to an extent. You know, and it, but Saul was actually seen to a future scene where in the kingdom of Ahasuerus, the Jewish children were raising their voices in cries of anguish, like a flock of bleeding sheep because of Haman's cruel decree. So he was actually hearing the, the sounds of the children screaming. Wow. Because they knew, like, their whole, their parents, everything they knew themselves will be wiped out from the face of the earth. Mm-hmm. But, you know, um, then you get to this last scene, and it's, it's interesting because here you have uh Shmuel, this is where Shmuel Samuel destroys Agag. Yeah. And so, you know, just have a, a short story time, if we will. 
Story time. Come on. Shmuel commanded, Bring the Amalekite king Agag before me. Agag was led out in chains. The prophet and the Amalekite king faced each other, a confrontation of supreme Kedoshah and Tummah. On one side stood Shmuel the saint, who had never hurt anyone in his life, who selfishly dedicated himself to traveling around the land in order to judge and teach the people. On the other side, a relentless war hero, whose goal was the oppression and destruction of anyone who stood in his way. A God could not fail to notice the righteousness and compassion reflected in the Navi's features. Relieved, he exclaimed, I am finally safe. The Jewish prophets are so merciful. But Shmuel replied firmly, you deserve to die. Your ancestor Amalek lured young Jewish men outside the clouds of glory in order to defile and kill them. Just as their wives were deprived of the company of their husbands, so will your mother now be deprived of her son. You follow in your ancestors' footsteps. You are the representative, uh, representative of a nation that fights Hashem and his people. Shmuel executed Agag by means of a harsh and cruel death. And just why, why did he do this? that um, the wording for uh, implies obliteration, total destruction, according to Rashi and Peskim 68a, which means that, you know, he was not to choose easy, easy death for him, but the cruelest one. And so getting back to our, our half Torah, it says he cut Agag's body into four pieces as one chops wood. And other opinions, he stretched Agag on four poles so that his body was torn in four. Shmuel herewith publicly demonstrated that Hashem's command overrides all personal emotion in accordance with the Pasuk and Telim 139.21. Do I not hate, O Hashem, those who hate you? Shaul and Shmuel parted, never to meet again. Shmuel could not bear to visit his former student and protege again. So deep was his mourning over Shaul's tragic end. Wow. Mentions just a little epilogue here. Shaul was severely cascaded on account of both details of Hashem's command that he failed to fulfill. Hashem's spirit departed from him and he lost his kingship for having Amalek's animals alive rather than opposing Hashem's command upon the people. Shaul and his sons fell in battle, having allowed Agag to survive and thus cursing, uh, sorry, causing Haman to come to the world. He also deserved that his own descendants would disappear from the world because he would not wipe out Amalek's seed forever. However, Hashem was compassionate and permitted the house of Shaul to survive because of two things. Uh, Samuel's prayers, his, his tefillot, and Shaul at the end of life sought atonement for his sin when he was willing to join his sons in war despite the fact that he knew he would die with them. Wow. He did this on the prophet Shmuel's advice in order to achieve forgiveness. Saul had a lesser descendants. We have Mordecai and Esther um, who overcome Haman and partially rectified his failure. However, the opportunity of Shaul was granted was a unique one, which was lost forever. The victory of Mordecai and Esther over Malek was incomplete. The final battle will take place when Mashiach will come. Then the forces of Kedusha will finally vanquish those of Tuma. Amen. Amen. Can't wait for that. Me too. Well, I just want to say to the story time drop that hashtag, you got to watch out for those quiet ones. <laughs> that's true ain't nobody yeah. think that Shamuel was gonna throw down like that nobody saw that come this is a man who was born out of heartbreak and mother's tears and prayers and 
like never took nothing from nobody mm. you know <clears throat> and just the contrast but it 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 shows i guess the difference and you you could argue also you know shawl shawl was just a man who like he was a very righteous man who had a very very difficult test and he failed it yeah yeah that's that's what many of the commentators relate um but you know samuel just goes to show us like he went went against his nature his very nature because he he wanted to fulfill the commandment wow you know and so you know it mentions that like only a king can actually destroy amalek and so samuel didn't kill him because he was uh amalek per se because that's only a king could do that he killed him that's why he mentions his his sins like you murdered he mentions the a guy king's um personal sins right like you're a shit of blood so i'm gonna kill you you know and so he slayed him on that uh that idea one of the ideas behind that but you know that's 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 our our half torah and you know based on this you could really see <clears throat> this is where shawl fell and this is where he is like this turning point in his life where he started falling spiritually because it's like you know it's like the the man on on top of the heels that's a sadiq when he falls he's never going to be the same again because he's had such a great fall because Hashem deals more strictly with the with the righteous than the average person so you know and it, it kind of puts in perspective why he handled the things with david and the and the later later and samuel you see from this well redeem the image of melech shaul yes man well, you got anything to say, or you want to go to some some practical takeaways? I kind of have two practical takeaways. <laughs> okay, so practical takeaways it is. Uh, I want to make sure, first of all, that we're Purim ready. So uh, do we have your tabs on that? Um, I'm, I have those ready, um, but we could go ahead and I'll let you... Now I've got your your tags. Okay, so we can close with that? Yeah. Okay, Rukashem. So first thing is, I'm going to kind of work my way backwards on this. So to go back to Doeg, the Edomite. Um, Doeg, Edomite, from Edom, from the household of Asaph, basically, or from the, the thought, the mentality of Asaph, at least, uh, and just that whole connotation. And you can quickly see why Doeg was definitely adamant against Melech David by saying he's not a legit Jew and all that kind of stuff. And so um, the Lakute Maharon from Rebbe Nachman says this, uh, Lakute Maharon 1 and then section 61, says Doeg is portrayed as the archetype of the brilliant, constipated Torah scholar who is all intellect without heart. Mm. That's, a, that's a pretty stout statement to make. 
So to think about, consider the source, basically. Uh, in other words, what Shaul went through and who was his source. That, that should tell you everything right there. Because sometimes we don't realize that who's in our ear is actually what's causing us to be successful or causing us to not be successful. And, um, you know, so I really love the fact of us really understanding we can't just throw Shaul under the bus and be like, yeah, he was first king, he was on borrowed time and all this kind of stuff. He started out awesome, he ended really horribly. And it's just kind of like, okay, but really what was his source? What truly was his source? Because this leads to my second point uh, for the practical takeaway is that, you know, many of us are getting the beautiful opportunity to take in so many beautiful insights, especially as a Lapid, especially as a believer and Mashiach who lives a Torah observant life. But guess what? With all of this beauty and with all of this amazingness, the Klippa, the the influence of impurity, the the Yatahara, if you will, is right there at our doorstep. And it's ready to pounce on us. And I think about the fact that you talk about the specific point about Shaul was commanded, leave nothing of Amalek left. And Doeg comes in with his beautiful little, uh, what do we call that, homiletic. His beautiful homiletic of taking the same word and giving it a different meaning because that happens in Ivrit a lot, like, Cherut and Charut is an example, like freedom on the tablets or the engravings on the tablets. And looking at this scenario here, he's just like, destroy everything. No, that means withhold things. And it's just kind of like, okay, uh, I'm pretty sure that's not what you should do. Because when you really look at any type of uh, rabbinical interpretation, any kind of oral Torah that is coming in with commentary, you have to have dots connected, critical thinking. You have to have the the uh, tradition that has been laid out. Everything's been vetted, you know, and so we can't just come in and start undoing little strands here and there because you will undo the whole garment. This is why I believe it's so beautiful that Mashiach says, for the Torah hangs on these two things. You know, and it's basically the greatest commandments. And it's just kind of like, okay, well, what hangs? What hangs on a hook? Uh, None other than a garment, you know, kind of thing. And so you start thinking about that. And so my practical takeaway in all this, when I put them together, is that who are we listening to? And the words that we're actually sharing, where, where are they pointing us towards? What are they making us focus on? You know, and to not be, to not be, like you said so beautifully, to not be considering ourselves more holier than our creator, more smarter than our creator, more intuitive than our creator. If Hashem said to do something, let's not find a way around it. You know, we're supposed to eat kosher. So there are so many reasons why we should eat kosher and there are so many reasons why we should not eat kosher because there's been 2,000 years of that. (laughs) 2,000 years of telling us, here's some reasons why you shouldn't eat kosher. Let me tell you, you know. 
and I was actually on the gram, I'm calling it, it's Instagram, but I was on gram, and it was saying they had this beautiful pie chart about why do we not keep some of the laws of Torah today. It was a beautiful pie chart, and it's got all these different colors. It's like five different things. It was like a gradient for uh, we have no judges currently today. Uh, two, we have no temple. Three, the Torah is too hard. Four, Mashiach says, or Mashiach did away with it. He abolished it basically from his work and uh, stuff like that. And so the, the last three little options there about the whole um, it's too hard, Mashiach did away with it and all that kind of stuff, That those colors were not on the pie chart. So the pie chart was all, yeah, we don't have a temple right now. We don't have any judges and all that kind of stuff. And so it was just like, wait a minute, what? This is beautiful. And I saw I tweeted it. So if you go to the Shomerman Twitter page, you will see that chart. Um, and I just recited it all by memory, but it's a beautiful illustration of this practical takeaway. Please let us annihilate and destroy Amalek. Let us take the words of Hashem and truly build the tower of Yeshua, the tower of salvation. Amen. Amen. I love that. <clears throat> Shameless plug, not fine. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Twitter, show me. <laughs> Met Lapid. I love that you you mentioned about Doeg, and you brought him back up about being all intellect and no heart, citing citing Nachman. Mm. Wonderful insight. You know because this is actually why you know you look at the the last last uh, parsha and Shmot, why um, Betzesa uh, Betzalel, mm-hmm. he said the the tabernacle had to be erected before, you know had to be built before the ark and all that. Yes, and the deeper insight to that, what he was saying is that yes, the Torah is is the main purpose of the Mishkan, but if you want Torah, you first have to build a structure for that, and that is the fear of God. Oh. And also, as, as Mashiach has also said, you know, the the love of God and the love of your fellow, and fear really precedes love. You can't love something that you don't fear and respect, that you have no appreciation for. Um, you know, and so this is why, even though he was brilliant, absolutely brilliant, this is why he made the error because his heart was wrong. And we, we mentioned this whole idea, like Yehoshua couldn't defeat him like, like Shaul could because his people weren't spiritually ready. You know, and this is why Yeshua was so adamant about getting people's hearts to change, giving them Musar, because it's only when you, you change your nature then you can change the world and you could affect, you could actually bring miracles to the world because you have to first change your miracle. If you're doing it, if you're doing miracles in a kosher way, like Hashem's way, you have to change who you are before you can even do the slightest miracle. Um, but that's interesting. And, you know, you mentioned this whole idea of homiletics that dog was playing and he wasn't wrong. And, you know, I, um, there's this idea that um, Amalek, he's related to the, the um, he's related to the, 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 the foreskin, if you will, of the human body that's meant to be cut off. The Orla? 
Yes, he's related to the Orla. This is what Amnok is related to. And so if you look at through this this aspect, when Shaul says, I'm oh, sorry, Shmuel says that he is to be obliterated, he's to be cut off. And then Doi comes and he says, oh yeah, no, it means he's supposed to be set apart as sacred. Mm. Well, you look at the whole idea of, of, of Mila and circumcision and all that, because you, you, you cut off this little part of the, the Orla, you know, because of that, you're set apart as sacred. You're in covenant with the Shem. And so Doeg wasn't wrong, wrong. He just twisted it because his heart was twisted. And like Mashiach says, like out, out of the heart comes, comes all these vile things, adulteries and thieveries and murders, you know? Because his heart was wrong, he spoke wrong. You know, and so it, it was actually the same thing. It was just a process. Once you obliterate them, it's like you've set apart the world as sacred to Hashem because you eliminated evil from the world. Good night. But it's just really, really interesting. I love those, those practical takeaways that you, you brought down. I got a couple of, of um, stuff that I've been reading. And stuff it's stuff we do every so often or every day that actually if we have the right kavanah, the right intention when we do it, we are fulfilling the mitzvah to remember the defeat of Amalek. Amen. And if we constantly remember they're to be obliterated, then we won't make the, the blunder of, of, of Shoal. Can you hear that tone? So basically, this is the meaning and the essence of Shabbat Zakor coming at you in a practical way. Yes. You know, um, so let's start with uh, some halacha and insights into that. One is the idea of Kaddish, the idea of, you know, like the, the mortars Kaddish, what we say, uh, someone passes chasve shalom. Um, but it mentions this, that there are, are many interpretations of the Kaddish as we find in our sacred literature you should have at least the minimum in mind so that your words will not be like a body without a soul. When you say, may his great name be blessed, have in mind the word Shemei, his name, is composed of two different words, Shem, name, and Yud, hey. For in our times, due to our sins, the name is not complete. Our rabbis of blessed memory teach in Midrash Tankuma Kitetze 11 that the name of the throne will not be complete until the name of Amalek is erased from the world. As the verse says in Exodus Parsha Mishpatim, chapter 17, verse 16, for the hand is on the throne, Kes of God, uh, Yud, Hey, the Torah spells the, the word Kes without the final letter Aleph, Kese. God's holy name is also incomplete, for it is written here with, the, with just the initial Yud and Hey rather than the complete tetramogram. Yep. So consequently, have in mind that by responding to the Kaddish, the name of Amlek will be erased and God's name will be complete. The Shemei, that is Shem, Yudhei, the name of God, will be great, Rabbah, um, namely complete. And so when the Kaddish is going on, when we say the words, may his great name be blessed. We have in mind that the name of Amalek will be erased and God's name will be complete. Mm. 
And so, so we can do this just by saying Kaddish. And you think about the whole idea of, of, of saying the more Kaddish for someone. This is a way that, uh, especially with, with, with sons and, um, and parents, if the parents were, uh, you know, maybe they just didn't know Hashem or maybe they have certain faults or, or, or flaws as everyone does. The sons or the daughter can say, you know, Kaddish for their, their parents and this goes as a huge merit and spiritual protection for their parents. And this is the opposite of what Amalek wanted. Amalek wanted to destroy all the Jewish nation. He wanted to, to have dominion and subjugate the entire world. Wow. And you think of like your stereotypical villain, like this is the basis for it, Amalek, except a lot more, he's a lot more wicked. You know, and so when you're saying Kaddish, uh, Kaddish for someone, like there's no way they're going to be able to pay you back ever. It's the greatest gift you can give someone because there's no like you're not going to get paid back for it from them at least not in this world but you you offer spiritual protection for them for life you protect life you guard life you foster their life and give them merits and 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 the next world you know as opposed to melek who tried to take it take life well and so there's there's uh, no, another point is uh, the idea of, and we we have the custom of of drinking on Purim, you know, and Great not not saying Gatorade, lemonade. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> like, that's I, I actually drink. That's what I'm be drinking, but you know. <laughs> but who instituted this purpose was actually Mordecai. Mordecai. And so we look at all these customs we have in Purim. We dress up in costumes. We we tend to drink you know and it's you know it's it's interesting because mordecai instituted his purpose why did he institute the mitzvah of imbibing why he wanted us to go beyond this according to the breslov commentary on esther he wanted us to go beyond our ordinary selves because drinking on perm is not meant to be mere frivolous merriment it's not meant to be mere frivolous merriment okay i'm stressing that point it's meant to inflame our hearts and unleash our yearnings to heighten our perception of the spiritual world, to rise above our normal awareness, to see from our higher selves, to know from there that the desire, our desire itself is not evil. What's evil is our identifying with it. That's from Luke Halakot Basar Makalav 519. And so this is why we, we drink on Purim. It's, it's to go beyond ourselves. We think about that. It's, it says... Uh, there's a there's a spiritual message that we're supposed to take between you know it's it's mentioned uh, drink to the point where you don't know the difference between Haman and Mordecai. Well, what what's the lesson of that? And the lesson is is Mordecai represents like this ultimate Siddiq, the ultimate good, and Haman represents the ultimate wicked. And Saul and his blunder, what his blunder was, is he thought he knew what was right. He thought he was more merciful than the creator. And maybe he wasn't intentionally, he wasn't being intentional about, he wasn't thinking I'm remorseful, but his action proved what was in his heart. Like Mashiach says, wisdom is, is proven by her actions. And so he, he thought that he, by allowing them to live, he was fulfilling the commandment. He thought he knew it was right when it was wrong. And so this is this is I guess the the message behind the statement of, of the sages is uh, of when they say don't drink to the point you don't know the difference between Mordecai and Haman, it, it's to say hey look 
like we have to go beyond ourselves and realize that we are not the say all be all of what's right and wrong. God is. Amen. Get beyond your desires, get beyond your natural tendencies, go beyond yourselves. Understand that you are not your desire. That's not your identity. Your identity is ultimately a shim, and you need to be acting like your father. Mm. You know, um, so there's there's one aspect, you know, getting perm ready. Another aspect is how we defeat um, Amalek is by is this by saying the Elenu. <laughs> and I'm gonna I'm gonna elaborate, uh, you know, the thoughts uh, thoughts on this because you look at Elenu. What's that? Come on, Hussies, really? Yeah. So <clears throat> I I I don't have an explicit source for this. So this is um you know, I just want to put that out there, but it's taken from ideas of different sources. And that's the idea that, you know, uh Yehoshua actually developed the Elenu and he hid his name through there as a crostic. I second your source. I don't have the source, but yes, I know it is a source. So it's it's actually it's written in a book that's an amazing book. It's called um, and I, I don't know where he gets it from, but um, is a very incredible rabbi. Um, his memory for blessing Avraham Tversky living each day, mm. and he he cites that Yehoshua was so in love with the Jewish people, okay, Yeshua was so in love with the Jewish people that he wanted to associate himself with prayer so that they would always have a means of connecting to God. Good night. Okay. So you just, you just look at that's amazing. So, you know, on, on one note, you know, Yehoshua, Yeshua, when you pray the Elenu, it's a closing prayer. You're literally praying in the name of Yeshua. When you pray the, the full two paragraphs of the Elenu, you're doing that. Um, but why does, what does it have to do with Amalek? Well, Yehoshua was the one who Moshe sent to battle him. You know, we, we started many, many Midrash about that. And so how does this have to do with defeating Amalek? Because it mentions that Hashem's name isn't one until Amalek is defeated. So here you have Yehoshua, the one who battles Amalek, the, the descendant of, of Rachel and Yosef. And then at the very end, it says, and his name will be one. His name is one when Amalek is defeated. Yeah. You know, and, and so what are we doing when we pray the, the full two paragraphs of the Elenu, that entire two paragraph section? We are literally taking a spiritual stance against Amalek and looking forward to the day where we are destroying him. Or, well, Hashem is destroying him, I should say. You know, when Mashiach will come and annihilate Amalek from the face of the earth. You know, that right there is a picture of how something that currently isn't, by faith, it can come to be. Yes. So let's call it. Let's do it. We, we should. Just one final point, um, since I want to you know, tie it into the, this half Torah, is um, the article... A little end paragraph by Dr. David Schatz, um, article about uh, Shoal, Shoal mm -hmm. and his fall. And, you know, there's a million lessons, this, this half Torah, and, and just a story of Shoal and his life can teach us. But I want to kind of end, end the practical takeaways with this, this note. It says, 
He says, and we walk away with a moral uh, Musar Haskell. Just as Shaw eventually did, we need to introspect deeply. We need to face up to our failings to appreciate when our justifications are mere rationalizations and to know when we have purchased psychological comfort at the expense of allegiance to principle. And so, you know, a, a lot of times, in a sense to, to summarize, a lot of times we, we make our decisions of what's right and what's wrong. And, you know, whether there's a straightforward commandment or a straightforward halakha, sometimes we disregard it to fit our own personal comfort zone. And this is how, this is how a melech is allowed to be a sustain in the world. Chasta shalom. Is when we take something that's so clear cut, a halacha, commandment, whatever it may be, and we try to distort it to, to fit our comfort zone. And so may, may we be people of, of faith. May we be people of who, who inspect deeply and who work on our character so much that we can overcome our nature like Shmuel. And when we see the enemy, even though we may be, you know, completely harmless people, when we see the enemy, when we see our Yetzirah, we can tear it apart limb by limb. But it only comes when we introspect, when we work on ourselves, we work on our character, because it's only by working on our character that we're able to make movements in, you know, the spiritual realm. And how do you do that? By, you know, you know, just everything God says to do, do it. Even if it's just little halakha, like we read, hey, the Kaddish, saying the Moros Kaddish. You're protecting people. You're defeating a melech. You're saying the Eleno. You're protecting people. You're defeating a melech. You know? But just the idea that, that we should be people who, despite our own nature, our own comfort levels, we'll be willing to go outside of that in order to sanctify God's name on this earth. Amen. Well, on that note, what do we know? What do we know? Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam Zor kol haolamim Zadik bekol hadorot Ha'el haneeman Ha'omer ve'oseh Hamdaber umkayem Shekol davarav emet vazedek Neeman atahu Adonai Eloheinu Ve'neemanim Devareka Vedavar echad mid vareka akor lo yashuv recham hi el melek neeman virakaman ata baruk ata adonai ha el ha neeman bekol davarav iskut mashiach yeshua amen amen may this podcast be to the refuah shlema of our beloved sister Esther and may everyone have a shavuoto and an amazing and successful Shabbat Zakor. Amen. Amen. Well, Shalom, Habibi. Shalom, everyone. This is Shomer Man and Chasis Ba signing off. Shalom.